Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm explaining what that means. Look at verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This very cryptic statement, which we have to explore for a moment, is here before us. The scripture tells us that up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the import or the impact of this remarkable claim. Up to now, it says, because Jesus has not been glorified. In the book of John, we will later see the moment of his being glorified is his death. That's why when Jesus says, when he is about to die, now will I be glorified. It's the day of his death. Not until he dies would the Spirit be given. That's a pretty remarkable statement. What we're looking at is a presence of God issue. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit and the presence of God are the same thing. So, for example, whenever we talk about Gideon or Samson or David or one of these great heroes and the Spirit of God descending on that person to give them power for great feats and deeds, we're also told, and God was with him, or, and the hand of the Lord was on him. And so we see the presence of God and the Holy Spirit are the same thing. So how in the world could Jesus say then that the gift of the Spirit is about to be given? We first have to realize what the claim is. The word given is a relative term, and its only possible explanation is Jesus saying, you know how the Spirit of God came upon the people in the Old Testament, but you haven't seen anything yet. What I have in store for you compared to what they had is so much greater. The Bible tells us not only that the gift is coming, but how that it is procured for us. How is it procured? It is procured because Jesus died. He was glorified. When Jesus says, if you come to me, you will be like the rock out of the wilderness out of which comes flowing fountains of living water. Jesus is referring us back to Exodus chapter 17 and the great story of the smiting of the rock. Do you remember what happened there? God had been providing for the Israelites in the wilderness. He took care of them in so many different ways, but when they got thirsty, they rebelled. The result? They turned around and they blamed God. They said, we don't like the way in which you are managing our lives. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, me neither. But what they decided to do because they were mad at God, and this is what a lot of us do, is they took it out upon somebody else. They tried to kill Moses, the closest authority figure they could lay their hands on, because they were mad at God. And so they hated the authority figure, which is the next best thing. They lodged a suit against him and accused him of mismanagement. They actually wanted to kill him. So what does God do? God comes to Moses and says, 
Moses, take the elders and the rod of God and go up to the big rock. Now, if you're reading this, you've got to be thinking. Now I know what's going to happen. Since they're accusing Moses of mismanagement and they want to execute him, but now God has accused the people of rebellion. And they are actually the ones who deserve to be executed. Because we know that the elders and witnesses were the elders were witnesses in the trials, and the rod of God was always the symbol of punishment and judgment. So we figure, I know what's going to happen. They wanted to put Moses on trial, but they're going to be put on trial themselves instead. However, when we get to the rock, God shocks everybody and says. Moses, I will stand before you on the rock, then gather the elders around, and then take the rod of God and hit it. Hit it? Moses didn't get it. Nobody got it. All we know is Moses lifts the rod of God when God stands on the rock, and he brings the rod down the rock, which is symbolic of Christ. And after that stroke, out comes the water, and the people are saved. Now, literally, of course, Moses could not strike into the Shekinah glory of God. He wasn't able to literally strike God. But do you see what God is saying? God is saying someday somebody has to be punished for the cosmic stupidity of the human race. Someday somebody has to be punished for this rebellion. And because of that, I'm going to come down. And I will stand in the dock. I will make myself vulnerable. I will take the stroke. I will endure the punishment. And because I take the stroke in your place, you will now be able to receive the blessings. You will now be able to get the rewards. I'll take the punishment for all of man's rebellion. He doesn't have to, you know. He has the ability and even the right to destroy everyone and everything. Think Genesis chapter 6. The world has just got started, and yet mankind has already devolved in such rank wickedness that God has to destroy the entire human race, except for Noah and his family. The condensed version is, the ark is built... The world is flooded, but those who are on the ark are saved. Then what does the Lord do? He puts a rainbow in the sky as a promise he won't destroy the earth by water again. But here's what most of us miss about the rainbow. When we think of a rainbow, we think of unicorns and lucky charms. But in biblical imagery, the bow is a weapon like a bow and arrow. And the rainbow was to remind the people of the judgment that came about because of the flood. But here's the beautiful part. When you see a bow in the sky today, it's always bent as if it would shoot the arrow into the heavens. It also serves to remind mankind that the next time God would judge the sins of men, his son would take that arrow on the cross of Christ. And yet, we are so often like the rest of the crowd complaining about lack of water. Do you see the wonder of this? Here we are. What are we doing? 
We're often just like the people of Israel. When things go wrong, there is God with his with our lives in his hands. And I'll tell you what my life is like, and I'd say it's probably a parable of your life also. We can spend all of our lives trying to reach up and grab our life out of God's hands by saying, give it back to me. I don't like the way you're running it, and so give it back. But then God says, that kind of rebellion needs to be punished, but I'll take the punishment. Don't you see, therefore, the reason? It's not until Jesus was glorified, until the day he stood and took the blow for us. What does it mean that we can now become rocks from which fountains of water can flow from our lives? The answer is only if we take the blow. And we can only take the blow if we believe in Jesus because you've taken the blow in him. You've been crucified. You've died with him. You've had the thorns. You've had the nails driven in your hands. God treats you as if you have been through all of that. And because he was glorified, we get the blessing. The long way to Messiah had come to the people of Israel. And here in their midst, he now invites them to come back to him. And if they had, they would have received rivers of water, not only flowing within their own lives, but also flowing out from them that others might be served and refreshed. It is what is called the filling of the Spirit or the overflow of the Spirit or the coming upon the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit, whichever term you prefer. The same is true today. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. But has the Holy Spirit came upon you? Is he overflowing from you? My beloved, there's a big difference between the Spirit being in you and the Spirit coming up on you and flowing out from you. People say, I received the Holy Spirit when I was saved. Amen, I say, you did. Like the disciples in John chapter 20, when you opened up your heart to Christ, you now have the Holy Spirit. He has taken residence within you. But my question is, you may have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? There is a great Old Testament picture of this. In the vision of the millennial kingdom, Ezekiel saw a river flowing from the temple. Walk with me, a man said to him, and they walked 1,500 feet. Step in, the man said. Ezekiel stepped into the river and was up to his ankles. Walk with me, the man said again, and they walked 1,500 feet further. Again, Ezekiel was instructed to step into the river. This time, the water was up to his knees. A third time, they walked together, and a third time, Ezekiel stepped into the river, which now came up to his waist. And finally, after walking further, Ezekiel stepped into the river once again, but this time he couldn't even stand. The water being over his head, Ezekiel was enveloped in the flow of the river. That is a perfect illustration of the life of the Spirit. What do I mean? Think about it. 
when you get saved, or we could say you step in, and you're up to your ankles standing on the promises of God. As you head down the road towards heaven, you go a little bit deeper in your walk, and you become aware of some impotence in your life. So you call upon the Lord, and now you're up to your knees in prayer. A little further on that pilgrimage, you want to see other people saved. And so you start witnessing and ministering, and you're up to your waist or your loins, which is a picture of the reproductive life of the Spirit. But finally, all of us want to get to the place where we can say, I just want to be in over my head in you, Lord. I want to just be immersed in your Spirit. I no longer want to control my life or my destiny. Take me, Lord. Sweep me off of my feet. Baptize me in your power. Do with me only as you wish. I said last week, don't think of the filling of the Spirit as in gallons. Like I only have 87% out of the 100% operating today. That's a faulty view. Jesus says the Spirit is like the wind. So how do I know if the Spirit is controlling my life this morning? Well, excuse me, I imagine myself as a sailboat. And when the wind catches my sail and fills it, what happens? Well, it moves me towards a certain destination. So too with God's Spirit. When I extend my sails through the disciplines of fasting, prayer, Bible study, and fellowship, the Spirit then fills me and then directs me on my journey. But if I try to do it myself in just my own strength, I'm just left paddling the boat with my hands. The good news is we don't have to live that way. God has given us his Holy Spirit. An early church father said, We have in the Old Testament God for us, in the Gospels God with us, and the Acts and the Epistles we have God in us. Look at verse 40 with me. Therefore many from that crowd when they heard this saying said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. The reactions of the people separates them into four different groups. The convinced, the contrary, the confused, and the contemplative. All of which are going to be represented in chapter 7. We will look at the first two groups this morning. And those responses comprise a universal pattern of reactions to Jesus Christ from the first century to this present day. First, some were convinced. When some of the people heard Jesus' gracious words of invitations in verses 37 through 39, they became convinced that he was the prophet of whom Moses wrote. Now, the prophet, of course, was the Messiah whose coming was foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. But in popular usage of the time of Christ, this phrase had instead came to denote the prophet who was expected to come as a forerunner to the Messiah. In other words, the prophet was thought to be the one who would point to the man's need 
but who nevertheless was not himself the answer to man's need. In calling Jesus by this title, the people were acknowledging, though, that he was a good man who spoke wisely. They were even recognizing a certain grandeur about him that might indicate that he had been sent from God. But they were not admitting the full import of his claims that he was God and that men and women could find spiritual satisfaction only by coming to him. These people still exist today. These type of people come today to Jesus for inspiring thoughts. Perhaps they'll even go to church on Sunday morning for the good it will do them, or they'll at least send their children to Sunday school. But they will not personally follow Jesus. They will not acknowledge him to be their Lord. But at the very least, these individuals view Jesus as a great prophet. Thus, while their knowledge may not have been complete, they were at least convinced that he had been sent from God. Now, others had a clearer understanding of who Jesus was and were saying of him, this is the Christ. They earlier had been intimidated into silence by fear of the Jewish authorities. But now having become convinced of Jesus' identity, they boldly proclaimed it. But not all in the crowd were convinced of his authenticity, however. The next group was contrary. While some were ready to accept him as the great prophet Moses promised, or even the Messiah, still others remained skeptical. Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, they scornfully asked. Now that question expects a negative answer. The idea that the, the Messiah could come from the boondocks of Galilee seemed ludicrous and laughable to the sophisticated Judeans. There were people who rejected Jesus entirely and who did so apparently on a quibble. They said he wasn't born with the right pedigree or he was born on the wrong side of the tracks. We see this reaction today in those who consider Christians to be uneducated people and who think of Christianity as being below their social level. But Jesus' exalted claims forced people to decide about him. And the result of that was verse 43, which simply records, and there was a division in the crowd because of him. That was exactly what Jesus said that he would bring. In Matthew chapter 10, he cautioned, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law and against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. You know what that tells me? He divides believers from unbelievers. He divides those who walk in the light from those who walk in the darkness. The sheep from the goats. The children of God and the children of the evil one. Everyone is either for him or against him. And there is no middle ground. It says people were divided over Jesus. And they still are. That is inevitable because Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. 
The people were divided over who Jesus is, and that has not changed in over 2,000 years. Now, of course, divisions should be natural where truth is concerned. Divisions occur because of strong doctrine. The great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon once wrote the reality of this in his day, saying, I have heard of a whole church in which there was no religious bickerings because there was no religion. There was no religious strife because nobody had anything worth striving for. And that, he added, is not a state of things of which over I can rejoice. And so there was a division among the people because of him. Have you found that to be true in your family, at your job, at your school? Therefore, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when you sense divisions due to your stand as a believer. It is inevitable. It happened here and will happen in our lives as well. When he was born, the prophecy went, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Falling or rising, it's all or nothing. He's a block of stone, the Bible says. You either build your entire house upon him or you stub your foot on him painfully. There's no way around it because he demands total reorientation of your life and absolute and complete obedience. He demands complete, unconditional, unremitting, and undiluted allegiance and loyalty. There is no way to remain neutral. Now here's the test. The test is when I say to the average person who comes to church or claims to be a Christian, tell me about your life and how you relate to Jesus. Almost everyone is moderate to some degree. What does that mean? It means that most people are not scouring the Bible every day to find out what God's will is for them. They're not examining their lives and chucking the things they think are going to harm Christ and displease Him and adding in the things they think He wants them to do. They're not taking their resources, their time, their money, and their talents and putting them utterly at his disposal. They're not wrestling to push his values into every part of their lives publicly and privately. They're not wrestling with prayer every day until they can just see his face because they want that more than anything else in life. I'm not preaching down at you this morning. This is challenging me as much as it is challenging you. If all this is true, though, that means we have to be all for Jesus or have really none of him. And that's not where many of us are. But I want you to see the precariousness and the illogic of that condition. Jesus says he is an all or nothing proposition. There's an old interview by a European diplomat who had known Adolf Hitler personally. He wasn't German. He was from one of the Western countries, but he had seen and known Hitler. He said, the weird thing about Hitler was, if I was blindfolded and taken into a room, I could tell you if he was in that room, 
even if he was not speaking. There was an electricity that just sparked from him, he said. You know, all great leaders are like that. There's an inevitability about them. There's a domination about them. If you were in German politics and Hitler came on the scene, there were only three things you could do. You could flee from the country, you could sell yourself to him body and soul, or you could assassinate him. Those are the only three things you could do. You couldn't compromise. You can't deal with him. You can't partner with him. You're either all for him or you were all against him. Or you were completely away from him. Now that amazed me because if that is true of Hitler, who just had these evil leadership gifts that I think were demonically powered, but whenever you came into that presence of somebody with that kind of power, you only have those three things that you can do. How much more true must that be of Jesus Christ? That's the reason he divides people. When you come into the presence of a great leader, it's all or nothing. Likewise, when you come into the presence of Christ, it's all or nothing. That's the reason why the Bible talks the way that it does. That's the reason why Jesus can make incredible statements like, in comparison to your love for me, you have to hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. We say, how could that be? How could he say that? He makes no apologies. He just simply says, that's just the way that I am. That's the reason why Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. I came to bring fire on the earth. Now, some people are playing with him like he's a kitten, when in reality, he's the line of the tribe of Judah. It's all or nothing. He doesn't just want to change our lives a little bit. He doesn't want to just make us a slightly shinier version of our old paganized self. He wants to utterly transform our lives, and he will not leave us alone until that happens. But if he is who he says he is, and we don't allow that to happen, we'll have to face him at the end and give him a reason why we thought we were more competent to run our lives than he. And by the way, there's no good answer to that question. When we accept his kingship, he then becomes Jesus the Lord. And he has to be both of those things if we are to open our lives to him. What do I mean? You can't have one and not the other. But some people say, come in teacher, stay out king. Come in helper, stay out God. Come in Jesus, stay out Lord. But he can't do that. There were people among the crowd who went even further. They were even willing to acknowledge that he actually was all that he claimed to be. They said he is the Christ. However, although they admitted the claims, we are not shown that they did the additional thing that is absolutely necessary. They did not follow out the proper consequence of their belief by coming to him. That may be the case to you this morning. You've heard the Christian gospel over a long period of time, and you understand what it is we're talking about. You do not deny the truthfulness of the scriptures. You affirm it. You do not doubt that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. You believe it. 
You do not question the veracity of the crucifixion or the meaning of Christ's death in your life. You understand this. You know that he died for you. But you have never really determined to follow him. What a sad state. How tragic to have an orthodox head wedded to a rebellious heart. Why not make today the day in which you go the whole way and receive Jesus as your Savior? Finally, as we finish this morning, although it is true that Jesus is the cause of these divisions, it is also true that he is the cause of the most profound and happy and glorious unity among his believers. Jesus divides? Yes. But for those who know him, he is also that which draws us together. This is Romans <clears throat> excuse me, 16.20. In it, Paul is telling some people that he dearly loves goodbye. I'll read it to you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write the letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host me, and the whole church greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And then he adds, and Quartus, our brother. At the end of that list, Paul greets Erastus, who would have been one of the most important people in the entire city since he was the treasurer. Now, allow me a little sanctified imagination here, because the next person that comes into Paul's mind is Quartus, whose name means quarter. In fact, it was more a job title than a name. He was given the name Quartus because he was only the fourth most important slave in the house of Gaius. But they are all on equal setting in the eyes of God. Now all have been included, from the most important elected official in Corinth to the least important slave in Gaius' household. All I want to leave us with this morning is the realization that people all around us are dying of thirst. There's an old tradition on large Australian ranches located on often dry land that there are two ways of keeping cattle on the ranch. One is to build a fence, and the other is to dig a well. What a gift it might be to a world that has become increasingly polarized and politicized if the church would be utterly committed to Jesus as our center and the spirit as flowing from our lives. Not fences to keep others out, just the life-giving water of the Spirit drawing people ever closer to his presence. Oh, Lord, let that be Calvary Chapel, Princeton. Pray with me. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. In Christ's name, amen.